0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org
1: Where have we got to? We've got about like uh, an eighth of the way through the book, so... Um, <laughs> so obviously the last session must have raised a lot of questions hopefully we tackled some of them here um but it's been great having conversations with some of you throughout the the break as well we'll have another break in a bit so do feel free to keep coming with your questions i'd like to keep us moving on so that we don't just get stuck on the warnings because um, actually my point is that the warnings are little sticks in amongst a field of carrots if i can put it in a really weird metaphor like that but there's so much encouragement in the book of Hebrews um, that sort of explains the warnings and gives sort of uh, ballast to the warnings and if we don't get the encouragement and we don't get the theological argument uh, that Hebrews is trying to make then it's easy to get fixated on the warnings in a way that is perhaps unhelpful and achieves the opposite of what Hebrews is meant to do. It can make us introspective rather than looking at Christ. So... I want to press on, and we're going to go. Um, so obviously, we've just done sort of one to four, or four eleven, I think I took us to, and then uh, three six B and fourteen, and then six. And now we're going to go back to sort of four and look a little bit at four and five. Um, and and actually, I think this is the beginning of the key bit of theological argument that runs right the way from chapter 5 verse 10 no chapter 5 verse 1 rather to 10 verse 18 uh, and this is like a core extended argument that kind of goes in a few different directions but if you get this like you get all of Hebrews really um, and we're, we're actually not going to go much beyond 10 18 because uh, we don't have time but um, but actually I think if you get chapter 5 to 1018 then that pretty much sets up all the other stuff and the other stuff just becomes examples and application of what we're going to learn here so um This is the beginning of the central theological argument of Hebrews, which runs from 5.1 to 10.18. It's an explanation for why Jesus is uniquely able to give us rest in a way that Moses couldn't, Joshua couldn't. It explains why returning to Judaism is not a viable option for the recipients of the letter. And it also explains the basis of the author's confidence that the recipients of the letter will have a strength to persevere and will ultimately enjoy salvation. I'm just correcting my typos as I go. So, um l- let's think about how Jesus is better than Aaron. Um who was Aaron? Yeah, and what's his significance? He was the priest of the nation of Israel. Okay, great. Yeah, and uh he so he was the priest, he was in fact the high priest, um, and he was from a particular tribe. Do you know what tribe he was from? Levi. Yeah, the tribe of the Levites. Great. So what we get in Hebrews chapter, um, let me just open it up. It probably helps if I have the passage open in front of me, doesn't it? Um, Yeah. The argument starts to sort of Go in weird circles. So again, I'm going to sort of chronologically arrange it to take us through the the logic of his argument. Um, but if you look at chapter five and verses one to four, what we find is it sort of just lays out some general principles for uh, what a high priest should do. Uh, what are the qualifications of a high priest? And the argument is going to go that, in, in fact, it has gone. If you look at the end of chapter four, we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, which Um, sort of comes out of nowhere, really. It's like, hang on, what's the high priest bit? Where did that all come from? And it's like he then backtracks and says, well, let me explain the high priest thing. So that's what we're going to look at first. Um, What does the high priest mean? And therefore, what does it mean to say that Jesus is a high priest? And in what sense is he better than the previous high priests? So 5 verses 1 to 4 sort of lay out some of the principles of high priestness, um, what qualifies you to be a high priest, and looks at how Aaron is qualified. And then 5 to about, sort of, well, verse 5 to 10 Uh, looks at how Jesus also fulfills those qualifications. So the four qualifications that we see here are solidarity, gentleness, purity, and calling. So let's just look at each of these. So for Aaron, um, we are told that he is selected from among men. There's this sense of solidarity with mankind. Um, So he's not just brought in from elsewhere. Uh, he, he, He is He is a man. He is a human being. He has solidarity with mankind, which means that he is able to empathize with them, to understand them. And in fact, in the case of Aaron, he is is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray. Why? Since he himself is subject to weakness. So there's this sense of solidarity. He understands the people he's being a priest on behalf of. Second qualification, gentleness. So again, I just touched on that there. He's, He's gentle. He's able to deal gently with those. Those who are ignorant and are going astray, so a high priest not only had to understand what people were going through, they had to have a compassion towards them, a sense of gentleness of uh, love for people, I suppose, and wanting to bring them to healing and wholeness. thirdly, there was a sense of purity was essential for a high priest, and obviously, no high priest was pure uh, in, of, in and of themselves. no high priest was perfect, but there was a provision within the law that a high priest could make himself pure so verse three. This is why, uh, relating to him being subject to weakness, this is why Aaron, or the high priest, had to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Purity was important. If you were going to bring forgiveness for people by offering sacrifices for them, you first had to make yourself clean so that you didn't make their sacrifice unclean. That was a key part of what it meant to be a high priest. And Aaron was pure, not naturally, but because he offered sacrifices for himself and fourthly, there's a sense of calling. So verse 4, no one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So the sense that uh, you don't just become a priest because you want to become a priest or because you've got ambitions of greatness. Um, the ministry is not a good way to go if that's, if that's what you're dreaming of. Um, the idea was not that you take this upon yourself, because that might suggest bad motives. Actually, you have to be called and set apart by God and Aaron was particularly called but also he was part of the tribe of the Levites and so his whole tribe his whole family from him onwards were set apart by God called by God to have this particular role that was different from the other tribes they were the priests so those are the four qualifications and Aaron fits them in those particular ways but then it goes to look at see well does Jesus fit those qualifications if we want to think of him as a priest like does he fit those qualifications
0: yeah. For the calling group, although it was from the tribal mm. and Aaron
1: specifically was called as the mm. priest, mm. there were different categories right, but they all did. Different categories of priest. Yeah, yeah. so some served in the temple, some served yes. as
0: singers, some
1: served. Yes. Was it just Aaron's in the then that became priests through the generations? Yeah, yeah so, so the Levites um all priests came from the tribe of the Levites, um, and we'll see why that's significant in a moment. Uh, but within that as well, there were certain people who were called to be high priests, and that was obviously very limited. Um, and there were daily rituals that had to be done, and they would be done by regular priests. Um, uh, but then there were certain things that could only be done by the high priest, and again, we'll come to that um, in a little bit yeah so some of the daily tasks of refreshing the loaves of bread for the sacrifice and trimming the wicks of the candles and those sorts of things would be done by a regular priest from the tribe of Levi but out of that tribe would also be certain people who would be called to be high priests 83 of them uh, from the period of Aaron to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and they had a particular calling which we'll flesh out here yeah um So, is Jesus qualified to be not only a priest, but a high priest? Well, Verses 5 to 10 onwards um, suggests that he is. So firstly, solidarity. Well, actually, verses 7 onwards suggest, um, or really um, stress, emphasise, I suppose is the word, the humanity of Jesus. So during the days of Jesus' life on earth, actually a more literal translation is during the days of his flesh, uh, which is quite a strange way of putting it. Like during the days when Jesus took on flesh, during the time when he was physically here. It's emphasising his humanity. He was able to be a, hu- a a priest because he was born as a human being he stepped into this world and the emphasis on humanity runs through verses seven and eight um, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission although he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered and so you get the sense that it's really stressing Jesus' humanity he cried as we cry he offered prayers not always knowing what the answer was going to be he suffered as we suffer there's a real sense of his solidarity with humanity. Gentleness. Jesus learned submission and obedience. The more he immersed himself into our world and became aware of what we are going through, that brought about him, him, a sense of gentleness um, as he was obedient to God and as he identified with humanity. Purity. Verse 9 This is slightly confusing. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once once made perfect, he became a source of eternal salvation for all who obey him what is that about (laughs) Uh, well actually I don't think it means that Jesus had sin and that got worked out of him as he became made perfect actually I think this is uh, the, the way commentators often talk about it is this is vocational not moral so it's talking about him being made into the kind of person who is able to be a high priest rather than him getting rid of any kind of sin he had and the reason that we know that the author of Hebrews thinks that he was sinless is because he mentions that plenty of other times later on so you get to chapter 9 and verse 14 it talks about him being unblemished and without sin so we know that for the author of Hebrews he thinks Jesus had no sin at all so if there was any purifying to go on it wasn't moral it was vocational it was about him through learning submission and obedience and all these sorts of things becoming purified for the role of interceding on behalf of others and then yeah or qualified I suppose being Yeah, being qualified, um, yes, and with no negative connotations, as in like, let's get rid of these bad traits so that you're ready for this, but rather he was, yeah, having extra traits built on his already good traits, if I can put it like that, so that he is fully equipped to do the job of interceding on behalf of others. And then finally, this sense of calling. So as we've been told, like no one chooses it for himself. Uh, one must be called. And we've already seen in other places, but again here, um, just references to two Psalms, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, the first one, God said to him he didn't say it of himself, he didn't take the glory himself, God said to him, you are my son, today I've become your father, there's this appointing that Jesus got from God, and he says in another place, and I love the way Hebrews does that, by the way, oh, and in another place, <laughs> it's kind of, like, anytime I, I fret about, like, oh, I can't remember the exact verse of where that is, I think of Hebrews, He's like, oh, somewhere else it says this, <laughs> you know, like, oh, good, that's it, I, I, I want to be like that, because uh, it's a lot easier, um, he says, oh, in another place, he's talking about Psalm 110, which he's already quoted, and is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, says, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and we will uh, come back to what on earth that means in a moment. But clearly what he's saying is, take Aaron, here are the qualifications of being a priest, here's how Aaron did it, and Jesus fits all of that as well. So in a sense, Jesus is the same as Aaron, right? But actually, we know that Hebrews is never content with saying Jesus is the same as the angels or a communication or Moses, whatever. He's always Jesus is better. So, in what sense is Jesus not only the same as but actually better than Aaron? Well, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What on earth is that about? (laughs) Um, Melchizedek is a strange figure. He appears three times in the Bible um, Genesis 14, Psalm 110 and then here in Hebrews um, it just so happens that Dave preached on Melchizedek a couple of weeks ago so if you were here at Christchurch you might have heard his sermon and have an idea of who he is um, uh, so he kind of ruined the surprise, but there we go. Um, and, and actually, tomorrow, if you go to the South Service, he's going to preach on Melchizedek then. So tomorrow, you can sit there and go, I know all this, that's fine. <laughs> um, but Melchizedek was a priest. He turns up for just a few verses in Genesis, gets referenced in Psalm 110, like with no explanation, and then appears here, like in quite an extended argument in Hebrews chapter 7. What does it mean for Jesus to be designated to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, we need to understand a bit of Melchizedek's story. So, uh, turn over the page. And as I said, there are two main passages, only two passages, that refer to Melchizedek, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And the author of Hebrews basically starts with Genesis, draws some things from there, and then he moves to Psalm 110, draws some things from there, and ties them together. And takes from these tiny little references some absolutely incredible insights. Like, mind-blowing. You would never, ever get them uh, unless the Holy Spirit, I think, had inspired you. So, um, this is what he says in Genesis 7, uh, Sorry, in Hebrews 7, and then we'll actually go back. In fact, would someone... Volunteer to get Genesis fourteen open. Yeah, yeah, okay to see that. That'd be great. I will read what Hebrew says, which is a pretty good summary. Um, and then Graham will read from Genesis fourteen. This is what Hebrew says: This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the de- de- defeat of the kings, and he blessed him and uh, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Super quick summary. Uh, here's the extended version Genesis 14, verses 17 to 20. That's why I let you read that one and I read Hebrews. <laughs> 20. That was right, wasn't it? Yeah. So, a little bit of a random passage. Um, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him some money. Like, end of the story. Like, and he doesn't really appear again until Psalm 110. And it's just like, and now you're in in the order of Melchizedek. (laughs) What, what, this man who did virtually nothing? And um, like, that that doesn't sound great. So what is what on earth is going on there? Well, um, Hebrews starts with Genesis, like doesn't race ahead to Psalm 110. It starts, let's unpack the story a little bit. And it's fascinating. So Hebrews 7, you might want verses 1 to 10 uh, in front of your eyes. Um, He picks up three main things about Melchizedek. Starts with his title. Verses 1 to 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God most high. He met Abraham um, returning from the defeat of the kings and he blessed him. King of Salem and priest of God most high. Uh, Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, um, which is quite interesting. And then in verse 2 he says um, his name means king of righteousness. Now actually Melech means king, uh, Zedek means righteousness and so you put them together and you kind of get king of righteousness. But then he says also king of Salem means king of peace. Uh, Salem is sort of related to shalom uh, to do with peace and so actually Jerusalem has peace right in the name of of Jerusalem. And so uh, he is described as both a king of righteousness and a king of peace, both by his name and his title. And actually, if you read through the prophets, um, whenever they talked about the coming Messiah, there will be regular references in places like Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23 and 33, Zechariah 9, and various others as well, that talk about a Messiah who would come, who would bring and be marked by both peace and righteousness. And so in a strange sort of way, um, he is like a precursor to the Messiah, both in his title, but also the things that characterise him. So then Hebrews takes it a step further. Not only what can we learn about his name or his title, but what can we learn about his uh, existence or his qualification or, or, or um, his character? And there is very little to work with. And I look at that and I think, you've got nothing to work with. And Hebrews goes, the fact that I've got nothing to work with tells me something quite important. That Liam, you're an idiot and you didn't notice. And this is what he basically says. Verse 3. He was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So I'm like We know nothing about Melchizedek And Hebrews is like We know nothing about Melchizedek And that tells us everything about Melchizedek And so What we get here Is what is known as A typological argument from silence uh, Which basically means He's looked at the silence and thought Why have we not been told more about him Like God has inspired a scripture that is incredibly detailed. Why did he not tell us something more about Melchizedek? Maybe there's a reason. Maybe there is something powerful about this particular silence. It says that he is without mother, without father, and without genealogy. Now, some people, um, and there may be people here in this room, uh, and I'll try and be respectful, but some people would uh, read this and go, wow, Melchizedek literally appeared from nowhere. Like, uh, he has no father, no mother that's like there's something strange or mysterious or spiritual about him um he came out of nowhere maybe actually he is the pre-incarnate Christ and some people would say that maybe he literally was Jesus who took on flesh in the old testament that was actually what I was taught growing up um I don't think that's what's going on here um for a few reasons which we'll look at but actually it would be really weird if that was what they were saying, not just weird because it's weird, because all sorts of weird stuff happens in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, but weird because actually the flow of the logic seems to be that Jesus is actually better than Melchizedek. And so if you got this guy called Melchizedek who just came out of nowhere and did all the things that Jesus himself was able to do, then you've already got someone who is better coming before Jesus himself. And I think it would sort of ruin the, um, the logic of Hebrews. Actually, what he's saying here is something more natural, um, but also more powerful. The phrase without father, um, often in ancient literature, means he was possibly an illegitimate child. Um, Now, we don't literally know that Melchizedek was an illegitimate child because we know nothing about him. (laughs) Um, But that's a suggestion here. Without mother, um, often, again, in ancient literature, might mean that he was a child of a woman with low social status. Again, we don't necessarily know that that is true of Melchizedek. um, But the fact that a father and mother aren't mentioned, that we don't have a record of them, leads this guy to go, well, for all we know, he could have been an illegitimate kid with a mother of low social status. Like for all we know. I don't think he's saying literally there was no father or mother and I don't think he's saying either literally that he was born illegitimately of uh, a mother of low social standing. I think he's just saying we don't know and so from a literary point of view he is without mother without father. It's literary rather than literal. Without genealogy I, I think where it gets most interesting and most important because the fact that we don't know who his father or mother was and we don't know the children that came from him or where he fits within the genealogies of mankind means that he is not qualified to be a priest why because you could only be a priest if your mother and father were of a particular line you were part of a particular genealogy you had to be from the Levites, The fact that this guy turns up, he's the first priest in the Bible, but we don't know anything of where he came from, anything of what happened afterwards. We don't know that he was of the tribe of Levi. In fact, he wasn't because the tribe of Levi wasn't even around. Like, that means that Melchizedek is completely and utterly unqualified to be a high priest. Which doesn't sound great, right? (laughs) Verse 3 says this. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, again, not literally, but we just don't know what happened to him, beginning and ending. He just sort of comes and then he's gone. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And the order of that is important. It's not that Jesus becomes like Melchizedek, but rather Melchizedek was like Jesus which is slightly baffling given that Melchizedek came when no one knew of anything of Jesus. But I think what it's hinting at is that when God wrote this guy into the story, he had in mind the coming of Christ. And so he allowed only the details of Melchizedek's life that fit with the mystery of who Christ was going to be, to be the things that were recorded there. Melchizedek was made on the pattern of the Christ who was not to come for thousands of years. This is a lot to draw from almost nothing, right? <laughs> um, title genealogy. And then he goes a little bit further and he looks at the tithe. Verse 4. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So here he starts to draw out some really interesting things. The Levitical law requires tithe, the giving of 10%, to the Levitical priests. But when Melchizedek was around, was there a Levitical law? No, because the Levites didn't even exist. He predates the laws about tithing, and he predates the tribe of Levi. And so the Hebrews goes, and you can almost like... I mean, the phrase he says, one might even say, like, you get the sense that he knows he's saying something slightly out there. (laughs) You might even say, if you think about it from one particular angle, that Levi paid a tithe through Abraham because he was somehow in the body of Abraham, like not literally, but from Abraham was going to come Levi. And so if you read it back, historically, it's almost like Levi paid a tithe through his forefather to Melchizedek, which is obviously a slightly weird and poetic way of looking at it, but given that we're in the realm of poetry and oddity anyway, like it's not a huge stretch. Um, In which case... This is the key thing. Verse 7. Without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Without doubt. Never the other way around, really. So if Levi tithed to Melchizedek through Abraham, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, in whose body was Levi, and the greater always blesses the lesser then that means that Melchizedek, despite being disqualified from the priesthood, is actually better than both Abraham and Levi. Do you see the logic? I mean, he's barking mad, but like, you see the, do you see the logic? Yeah? You wouldn't really get that. Um, but as people have reflected on it, and I don't know if Hebrews was the first person to make that link or not, I don't know, um, I would like to think inspired by the Spirit, like the Spirit just brought these things to life. He's saying like, the, it's always the case that someone who blesses is better than the one who gets blessed. And so if you've got Melchizedek, you've got Levi, and you've got Abraham there, in whose body is Levi, or who's, from whose body will come Levi, then Levi essentially paid something to Melchizedek through Abraham. And the other way is also true, that Melchizedek, when he blessed Abraham, blessed Levi, Melchizedek is better than the other two. Do you see what I'm saying? Great. yeah, yeah. what about... So Melchizedek, he, he can't be a priest because he's not from the Levite. Mm. That, um... Mm. That. Yeah. Could that be in any way symbolic to all of mankind? Mm. In that, you know, we're not from the Levite tribe. Yeah. Yet God's ordered all of us, you know, to, to, to have a relationship with him. Is yes. And is there any symbolism there to Yes, but there's one more step to get between there and there, I think, um, because the question then is, well, what about Jesus? So, Jesus is told that he is going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and so, if our priesthood is somehow not related to us being Levites, like, how do we get welcomed in? It must be through this strange sort of line that goes away from the tribe of Levi, yeah, and it's... I see some of you bashing your heads, actually one in particular. But <laughs> um, this is strange, and this is mysterious. But do you see, I'm not asking you to know how he got to this point, but do you see how it works? Yeah. Bear with me. And turn over the page. <laughs> Two passages in the Bible that talk about Melchizedek um, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, so he's drawn all these things from Genesis 14, and then he goes to Psalm 110, and he essentially asks this question, it refers to Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek, and he says, well that's quite significant, um, and he said, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and there's a kind of like a question in the air, or a key point that he doesn't think he can but there you go he said if perfection could have been attained through the levitical priesthood wink why was there still a need for another one to come one who would come not in the order of the levites but in the order of melchizedek and so then we look at jesus and we think about his qualifications again and we see four things that are important there tribe and indestructible life purity and the sense of a new law Uh, let's look at seven verses thirteen to fourteen. In fact, could someone read those verses for me. Okay. So here he throws a curveball. Having said, Jesus is qualified to be a priest um, he then says actually he's not <laughs> because um, to be a priest you had to come through the order of Levi and Moses never said anything about anyone else becoming a priest it was only possible to be a priest if he came from the tribe of Levi but it's clear that Jesus didn't come from the line of Levi he came from the line of Judah and Judah was the line of sorry kings yes what did you say plumbers <laughs> yeah David yes um, so you've got the line of priests, the Levites, the line of kings, Judah, Judahites, uh, and Jesus came from that one. And so in all the other ways he's qualified to be a priest, but not in that fairly major way. In that sense, he's just like Melchizedek, like he's of the wrong tribe, like his, his genealogy disqualifies him from being a great high priest. Here's another problem. Psalm 110 was written um, by David about the Davidic king, the king that would come from him. But it says that this king will become a priest. That is highly illegal in the Old Testament. Because the Levites were the priests, the Judahites were the kings. You couldn't be both of those things. So actually for a king to be, operate as a priest was illegal. For a priest to operate like a king was illegal, you had to stick to your tribe. In fact, we have a, a, an incident in um, 1 Samuel 13 which illustrates this. Saul, who is the king, does some priestly duties and he gets punished for it. Why? Because it's illegal for the king to be like a priest. It's like a separation of church and state, if I can sort of put it like that. It's, um, uh, the, the, there are clear delineations. You cannot be in both of these tribes. You cannot be both of these things. And yet here there is a promise, which I don't know if people read that and go, well, I hope that never comes true because that's illegal. But like, there was a promise that there is going to, Be a priest king in a way that would have made no sense to anyone in the Old Testament. One was going to come to be a king and a priest, and the only way that can be possible is if it is possible to be a priest who is not also a Levite. Of course, we know from the Old Testament that's not possible except through the line of Melchizedek. So the tribe thing is a problem. Secondly, there's this element of the indestructible. Life. Uh, Could someone read um, seven verses 15 to 17 and 23 to 25? 23
0: to 25, yeah. And the former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. <laughs>
1: I love the way that verse 15 begins. Oh, this is clearer still. It's like, that presupposes that the early stuff was clear, and you're like, oh, this is even more obvious, you idiots. And it's like, actually, I'm not, none of this is clear. Let's, let's like, be honest, this is brain aching. Um, but what he is saying is this. There is something different about Jesus. Uh, he is not a priest on the basis of his ancestry. He cannot be. It would be illegal for him, a Judaite, to become a Levite. He must be a priest on the basis of something else. And here it says it's because of his indestructible life, his eternal life. And I think he has in mind his resurrection and the fact that Jesus is now eternally alive. You remember that he, when he talked about Melchizedek earlier, he said that he is not only without father or mother or genealogy, but without beginning and end of days. Therefore, he's a priest forever. Now, that was not literally true, it was literarily true. He's saying, as far as we can tell, from the poetry of Genesis, he just sort of never ceased to exist. What is literarily true of Melchizedek is literally true of Jesus because of the resurrection. So Jesus doesn't really resemble the Levitical priests. Why? Because they died. <laughs> in fact, Josephus tells us, as I mentioned earlier, there were 83 priests um, who each died and then passed on to the next one from the time of Aaron through to, uh, I think it was the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Yeah. So it would be like, you know, Aaron would die and he would hand over to his uh, son Eliezer, was it? And then Phineas and I. Ach- I'm not going to list all 83 of them. It'd be easier to list all the places of pie. But you know, it just they passed off from one to another to another as they died. Melchizedek doesn't seem to have passed anything on to anyone. And Jesus more re- represents Melchizedek than he does the Levites. Why? Because of his indestructible life. He's not going to die. And so it says at the end, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Actually, that word completely, it can mean either... Um, Fully, um, or it can mean eternally, or it can mean both. And I think it probably means both, actually. It means fully and forever. Jesus is able to save fully and forever anyone that comes to him because he never dies. So he never stops interceding. So if we need a priest who is able to bring us forgiveness, and you've got a priest who dies, his ability to bring forgiveness comes to an end. Jesus is constantly interceding for us. There is never a point, and there will never be a point, where Jesus' forgiveness, his rule as a priest, is not sufficient to save us. He can save us completely. You still with me? The third element, purity. Could someone read verses 26 to 28 for me? What he's saying here is that purity is essential but the repeated sacrifices of the priests the fact that the priests had to sacrifice again and again and again some sacrifices daily but also particularly like once a year the day of atonement the fact that they had to do it again and again and again shows their ineffectiveness for actually cleansing people's sin and the fact that they even had to make sacrifices for themselves before they made sacrifices for others showed that they were uh, sinners themselves. Jesus' sacrifice was completely different in two respects. First of all, he did not have to sacrifice anything for himself because he was already pure. And secondly, he didn't have to sacrifice again and again and again and again. He had to sacrifice once because his sacrifice was of an entirely different order. It was a once and for all sacrifice. And we'll pick this up again in a minute. The fourth thing is this, the idea of new law. Could someone read verses 11 to 12 and then 18 to 19? At chapter 7, 11 to 12 and 18 to 19. So a couple of things that stand out from this. Uh, The idea that if you change the priesthood, you change the law. So the law is tied to the priesthood. So actually some of the laws didn't exist and then the priesthood came and then the laws came and then if you are living under that law and under that priesthood, then you have to abide by the laws, they don't get changed. The only way they get changed is if another priesthood comes not another priest and that's important because actually in the Levitical line there were 83 priests each of whom died and then passed on to the next one the next one, the next one, the next one the priesthood didn't change it was just the one who mediated it changed and so actually with each new priest it's not like the law changed 83 times it didn't it carried on throughout the whole line however, when Jesus comes he is not simply a new priest and we know that he's not simply a new Levitical priest because he's not actually qualified to do that he is of an entirely different order and so if a priest comes from a different order, he doesn't just keep the status quo, everything changes. Everything. Start from scratch. And Hebrews is saying that Jesus is of a completely different order. Actually, you know, if Jesus had been, I mean, we're speculating here, if Jesus had been born a Levite, would this argument have even worked? <laughs> like, if Jesus had come from that Train and had become a high priest. Actually, he probably just would have kept up the status quo. The fact that he comes from an entirely different line is essential for understanding how Jesus is able to do something that no other priest has ever been able to do. And it says that he has set aside the old covenant. Where is it? Let me just find the verse. Uh, the for, verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it is weak and useless. Um, actually, the phrase set aside, it sound, it's the phrase um, that was used for annulment or cancellation of debt. Like it's completely written off, it's done, he's got rid of. God has changed the order. And as he's changed the order, he has changed the law, the covenant, everything, all gone, all changed under this new person. I don't know how that makes you feel like I think probably on the one hand it makes you feel like I've seen a few nodding heads like like things are clicking and you're going oh I get that, like it makes us feel good but it also makes me feel a little bit like well if God did that once, like how do I know he's not going to do that again like uh, do you know what I mean like if Jesus said, if God said for years, like, this is the way you live, these are the things you do, these are the things that matter to you, uh, and I'm not going to change it, I'm not going to change it, and then he does change it, and you think this is the way you live, it feels like shifting goalposts. And so how can I be certain that God hasn't shifted the goalposts again? Or how can I be certain that what I believe now about Jesus won't get changed at some point in the future? And it's like he picks that up, and so verses 20 to 22, he says this, That the formula, sorry, back in 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant an oath is binding and as we remember when when it talked about Abraham in chapter 6 so one chapter previously it talked about God making uh, an oath to Abraham swearing by the greatest thing which was himself like when we make oaths we may break them god is perfect and he has made an oath by himself we know how seriously god takes oaths and he has made an oath about jesus the lord has sworn and he will not change his mind you are a priest forever so in two ways we get confidence that things will not change one jesus is never going to die and if jesus never dies he never passes on anything to anyone else and two, God has sworn, I'm not planning to pass things on to anyone else either. I'm not planning to raise up another priest from the tribe of whatever. Like, God has made an oath. And so because of Jesus' resurrection and eternal life, and because of Jesus, uh, God's own commitment to his own oath, we have like this twofold guarantee that God is not going to change things from now on. We now live under a brand new covenant, which is better than anything that has ever gone before. You with me? I'll breathe now. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so um, again, like a lot to take in, and that's kind of dizzying, isn't it? And I don't know if the author of Hebrews just sat down one way and went, this is easy, or or like more likely this came out of a lot of thought, a lot of study, a lot of questioning, a lot of prayer, and a lot of inspiration by the, the Holy Spirit. But I think it tells us something interesting, not only about God's purposes, Uh, and the law and the covenants and the supremacy of Jesus I think it tells us something really important about scripture as well and this is a bit of a tangent um but I I was saying to Adam earlier actually I I think um this only really occurred to me the other day and I've been reflecting on it a little bit and probably reflect on it a bit more but um I wonder if Hebrews of all the New Testament books actually has the strongest doctrine of scripture in it um because you read through Hebrews and uh time and time again it just says oh God said this like in the Old Testament things that were penned by David God said that and so there seems to be this assumption that all of that is inspired by God or the Holy Spirit said and then it quotes another passage from scripture it seems to be an incredible sense from the author of Hebrews that that all of scripture is God breathed which is great (laughs) because you know I I believe that as well and and I think that other Passages and other writers, they affirm that in their own writings. So, Paul and Peter, and um, they affirm the God breathed nature of Scripture. But there's something about the argument of Hebrews that just makes you think, wow, this guy takes the Old Testament seriously and sees things in there, A, that I would never have seen, but B, it's not like he's making this stuff up. It's like God has put this stuff in and thought, no one's going to see this for thousands of years. <laughs> and when they do, it's going to blow their minds. And, and, and there is, it's completely coherent. It's odd. But it's completely coherent. There's nothing in there that you think, oh, he's dug himself into a bit of a hole there. You know, like in... You watch um, some... In fact, <laughs> this bag has been bugging me. Sherlock Holmes. Whose bag is it? Is it yours? Yeah, you no, know, um, the bit of Sherlock where he jumps off the building and... Uh, I don't ruin it. he's not really dead. And, uh, <laughs> you know... <laughs> And so you wait for the next series, and like so many people, will hear all these fan theories about how it happened. It never really explains it. And part of me just thinks, did the writers just dig themselves into a hole and go, don't know how to get out? Of that. We'll just ignore it, and pretend it didn't happen, and just pretend we're cleverer than everyone else. And I think that probably is what happened because the rest of the series is rubbish. So I, I think I think it's like they boxed themselves into this hole and thought, I can't get out of that. And there are various times where you think about the illegality of Judahites and Levites, and you think, man, God, you really feel like you're going to stitch yourself up here and create this mess of a story that you're not going to be able to resolve and then he goes you haven't seen half of it and it resolves it in this incredible way and this gives me such confidence about scripture because there are things in there that I would never write I think really like how on earth is this ever going to resolve it resolves with Jesus in an incredible way in a way that no human being could ever make up God must have been behind this the playwright Chekhov um uh Russian playwright he um, famously there's this this phrase that actually is attributed to him who knows if he even said it but it's about Chekhov's rifle and the idea is if you are writing a play and in act one there is a rifle hanging above the mantelpiece you know when you see that that's going to go off in act three (laughs) and you don't hang rifles on the wall that you're not planning to shoot in act three and that this is his sort of theory and you think about films or you know why is that incidental detail there? It's because it's going to come back and get you later on. And it's like you look at the Old Testament, it's full of rifles, like, all over the place, just everywhere. And these things that you're like, what earth does that mean? What do you mean about this serpent and the seed, and how's that going to work out when oh, it's going to come through Jesus? Or how does that, what, Judahites and Levites, why keep them so separate? Well, that's going to make sense in thousands of years' time when it comes to Jesus. There are so many rifles all the way through the Old Testament. It's like bang, they all go off in one go in the person of Jesus. And that gives me such confidence in Scripture. And it also just means that Scripture is such fun to understand, to wrestle with. That's why I love doing days like this. This is not a chore. This is really fun for me. Um, Because, I mean, it's hard, but it's fun for me. Because I I just get excited like a kid at Christmas. I'm like, look at this. This is amazing. And I want to share it with everyone. And I've been resisting the urge to share it with you through sermons for weeks. Because i just like, man, there's so much to see here. So many rifles. They all go off in Jesus. And... uh, that's maybe irrelevant, but I got excited. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any questions on any of that? We're going to then see how he applies it in just a moment. But um,
0: so, I mean, we know that Jesus wasn't
1: completely accepted by the Jewish community when he came. Yep. Was part of that
0: because he was like he was from the tribe of Judah, but according to the writer, mm. was, you know, he was also
1: considered a priestly figure. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah, good question. Well, I think there are probably a whole load of reasons why Jesus wasn't widely accepted by the Jewish community. Um, and and he, didn't, um, he didn't claim to be a priest uh, or operate as a priest, literally. Um, so actually, I'm not... I think there's a sense in which probably people would <laughs> are looking back at him and saying he operated like a priest rather than... You know, if, if he had literally tried to go into the temple and go into the holy place like saying I'm a priest he would have been killed um, I and mean, we know that from Acts because the, there was a charge brought up against Paul aren't you that guy who took the Egyptian bloke into the, the he's, no <laughs> no that's not me um, but like there's this charge if you tried to do that if you tried to operate as a priest literally you, you wouldn't be able to do that so Jesus didn't operate as a priest um, and didn't particularly bill himself as a priest so more that's retrospective but I think yeah that, I mean, the illegitimacy over his or the doubts of illegitimacy over his birth must have been significant because um, you know, people said, well, and we know Joseph's your father and you really expected to believe a virgin birth and all those sorts of things. And then the things that he did that seemed to be these sorts of interpretations of scripture. I mean, actually, one of the things that riled people up most of all was when he made claims to be the son of David or the son of God. Um, and so Psalm 110, which has come up so much here is one of the Psalms that Jesus quoted about himself. Um, you know, in a, in a riddly sort of way. He was like, oh, you know, this passage says, the Lord says to my Lord, come and sit Who's the Lord in this? And he's, like, trying to trick the Pharisees to see that they've got such a narrow view of Scripture, and he was claiming to be the one that sort of fulfilled them in a new way. And I think it's things like that really annoyed them, um, the Sabbath practices, those sorts of things. And the fact that he was beginning to show that there is a different way that doesn't always come through the temple system. So, um the fact that he offered forgiveness to the wrong people. <laughs> he ate with the wrong people. He, um, you know, when the guy is lowered through the roof uh, and the priests are there thinking, what's he going to do? And he heals the guy and he forgives him without him needing to go to the temple. I think prefigures the fact that there, this whole system is is done. His days are numbered. The fact that he said this whole thing is going to get torn down and he turned over the temple table so the temple literally had to stop like they couldn't offer forgiveness anymore um, I think in those sorts of things which were quite irritating for the <laughs> uh, the Jewish people they were all signs that there is a priesthood coming that is going to be completely different there is forgiveness and reconciliation with God that will come not through these sacrifices but through something different yeah 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 Yes. But
0: isn't
1: Jesus also through that or the line of Judah descended from Abraham? So then the Lord's death then operated in Jesus. Um that's not (laughs) right. You've got me, I've been wrong about all this Darn it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Like, yeah, all, all of the tribes came through the body of uh, of Abraham, so in a sense, yes, um, you might say that. But I think that's why um, it's so important to notice that Jesus was not made in the order of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek was made to resemble Jesus. So I think that's probably why Hebrews... Yes, that's right, yeah. So even though, yeah, g- genetically, you have the, the, the stream sort of goes downwards and Jesus is somehow in the body of Abraham, actually... He predates it because Melchizedek only was made like Melchizedek is because he was made on the pattern of Jesus who was to come. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and also the fact that when Jesus was physically born in this line, that wasn't him coming into existence. He, You're really confused by the orders of things. It's yeah, like a time-space continuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me explain. It's very simple. That's the time-space continuum. Done. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, it, I mean, obviously, if Jesus came into existence, you know, down here in time, I probably should be doing it this way, shouldn't I, in, in time? Yes. Predates Melchizedek. Yeah, predates Melchizedek and was the thing on which Melchizedek was modelled. So, yeah, yeah, good question. He was the creator of Melchizedek, yeah, and sustainer of Melchizedek. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yes. Um, let's take a 15 minute break go to the toilet, get a drink um, and then we're going to finish off by looking at the whole idea of the new covenant
0: thank you for listening for more information or for further podcasts and downloads please visit christchurchlondon.org